0: Good afternoon. Thanks so much for being with us. Happy Tuesday to you. Coming up on the program, we are going to talk more about the news that we heard this morning. Canada requiring a negative COVID-19 test for people who are crossing at land borders. That's going to start next week. We are going to check in with an immigration lawyer to find out if there will be exemptions and what that could look like, especially if someone shows up at the border and doesn't have the negative test. Also going to be talking more about the Canada Emergency Response Bill benefit some good news for people who thought they were going to owe a lot of money back to the government or have to repay some of the SERB benefit. Not the case as long as you meet certain criteria and we have an employment lawyer coming on the program as well to walk us through that. We also have two more of the wearable blankets to give away a bit later on in the show. We had a great time doing the trivia news quiz yesterday. We will do that again a bit later on in the program. First though, we are taking a look at something we've talked about quite frequently on the show, and that is visits to long-term care facilities, essential visitors, and making sure that there is a uniform policy across the board, no matter what type of long-term care facility we're talking about. Well, BC's ombudsperson has come out with some requests or some suggestions on how this could be a more fair system. And Jay Chalk joins me on the line to talk more about this. Thanks so much for being with us.
1: Good afternoon, Jill. Uh,
0: Can you talk a bit about uh, what you are calling on government and health authorities to do as far as looking at the gaps when it comes to the visitation policies and the difference in these policies that we tend to see?
1: Sure. So just cycling back a little bit to the early days of the pandemic, once uh, uh, we all remember how suddenly it all uh, uh, really came to the fore, and for a few months there was no visiting happening uh, uh, in most long-term care facilities. And then they slowly developed a, a patchwork of visiting um, approaches, so family and friends uh, uh, coming to visit their loved ones in long-term care, uh, and different approaches were employed across the province, uh, uh, and uh, different orders were made, and uh, so it was a bit of a, a, a very localized kind of um, uh, approach with, with um, you know, distinctive uh, features everywhere. So over time though, and that's a bit understandable I guess early on, but over time a a, a broader approach was developed and called for and eventually in January um, uh, the Ministry of Health issued a policy. Didn't get a lot of notice, but they developed a policy. Well last Friday Dr. Henry issued an order that made that policy that had been issued a month ago binding on all facilities in the province. So uh, our review is of that January policy uh, and uh, we are calling for two changes to be made to the policy. One is to make sure that uh, requests for visitors are dealt with in a timely way um, so that uh, there are timelines that uh, deal to determine how quickly a, a facility has to reply one way or the other with respect to a visit request. And secondly, that if that request is denied or restricted, uh, that written reasons be provided to the individual, and that way they can see whether um, uh, their application needs to be improved or maybe they should be... Um, pursuing one of the appeal routes that the policy provides for. Uh,
0: what would you say was the level of the complaints or the number of complaints that your office received even during the first wave when, when, like you said, there was kind of this uncertainty and we were trying to figure out what was happening?
1: So we received a lot of complaints uh, uh, from people and some were simply confused, but others were quite frustrated with uh, uh, lack of answers. Uh, and, uh, you know, that has continued. That hasn't... Uh, Uh, You know, that hasn't changed. So, you know, certainly it's an area that I think everybody has identified Uh, has been very difficult during the pandemic. And these are not straightforward decisions. Obviously, uh, it's important to keep um, COVID out of uh, care facilities, uh, um, um, given that uh, uh, how um, how lethal the disease is for for seniors. Uh, But at the same time, uh, I, uh, I think we've seen many stories where. You know, people have said without visits, my mom or my dad is deteriorating. Um, um, I'm not just there, um, you know, yes, I'm helping, but, but really I have a special relationship with them. And some, for some people, like they only eat if I am there. Um, and so, you know, explanations like that. So, so uh, you know, it isn't just a, a nice to have for some people. It's, a, it's really a have to have.
0: Uh, because i've even been hearing from people as well anecdotally some people saying that they were denied essential visitor status uh, others uh, told that and not given a reason uh, so how important is it uh, or or will there be i guess uh, how will we know that one of the requirements that anybody that is denied or restricted be given written reasons so will there be checks in place to make sure that's happening
1: right so the, i mean obviously when the stakes are high uh uh, we say, as and it's our job to make sure that government treats people fairly, when when the stakes are high, fairness should, needs to be high as well. And so that's why we're calling for these two changes. And I think uh, so far what we've heard back from government and, and, and Dr. Henry's comments yesterday at her press conference were quite positive about uh, uh, the intent to develop uh, both of these. Um, they're not difficult changes to make uh, to the policy, but they will require some rolling out um, uh, to make sure that... Uh, uh, all facilities are implementing them. So we'll be monitoring uh, 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 this. And we're also calling for uh, the policy and the procedures to be much better explained uh, and uh, and uh, communicated across the province. Currently, if you go to the ministry's website, you have to use exactly the right search terms in order to find the policy. Um, if you go to the health authority websites, uh, the five regional health authorities across the province, you see uh, Ah, uh, quite varying uh, degrees of how they deal with this, uh, and many inaccuracies uh, on those websites. So uh, there's lots of, and you know, those it's pretty straightforward about what needs to be done. Um, and so I think those things uh, can happen, uh, you know, in the next week or two. Uh, and so in a few weeks, we should have a, a clearer system across the province. Um, and that's what we'll be watching to make sure it happens.
0: Because, and, and you raise an interesting point, and I've heard that as well. In some cases, you're right, in one health authority, uh, there's one set of rules and one policy. And you might go a few kilometers and be in another health authority. And it's a different set of rules. And that seems to be causing a lot of confusion.
1: Right. And, and that's not the case anymore. There's one set of rules for the province. Dr. Henry has uh, made a, pro, a public health order. That order incorporates the Ministry of Health's policy. And so that policy is applicable in all facilities in all regions. But you're absolutely right. The the, the, um, the, um, websites, for example, across the province by the health authorities haven't kept up. And so they're not reflecting um, uh, that January policy uh, and they need to.
0: Well, uh, it's good to hear uh, that uh, things are being addressed and that this this is uh, being looked at. And like you said, hopefully uh, in the near future, we'll have a bit more clarity uh, for people about this because I know it's been extremely difficult for so many. Uh, Jay Chalk, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much, Joe. Thanks so much for being with us. Well, this past weekend, on February 6th, a news release was put out by the Coquitlam RCMP asking people to stop spreading Internet abduction rumors. And it went on to talk about unproven stories that have appeared on places such as Facebook, TikTok, and Twitter. Uh, The next day, another news release came out to clarify reported abduction attempts. And it also said that the Coquitlam RCMP regrets the use of the term rumors, uh, acknowledging that it had angered some people It had left others feeling dismissed. But all of this has also led to a lot of confusion and questions about whether or not there have been attempts of abduction or if these are in fact false news stories that are making their way around on social media so joining me to talk more about this is senior senior media relations officer with the bc rcmp sergeant janelle choyette thank you so much for being with us Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. It just seems like there's so many different things happening here. So can we start with, with the fact that, that all of this was circulating on different social media platforms? Uh, there was the linking of, of two cases of, of women who had been reported missing. Uh, there were reports of a white van being spotted numerous times and rumors of other abduction attempts. So, so what are we dealing with here?
2: So I think, you know, I mean, social media is great in that people are able to share uh, information quickly and efficiently and get the word out there. But it also is problematic, especially for police, in that people are reporting crimes that they have not yet reported to police um, through social media and or amplifying information that may have come from other jurisdictions, such as, you know, the United States where uh, information is then passed along and people take it as their own. so in this case, there were a number of um, people who were connecting some missing people here in the low some missing women particularly uh, in the last month, there were several women who were missing um, and linking those to a uh, together when in fact, after you know we've looked at those cases uh, individually and collectively and determined that there is no link, in either of those cases, and I mean we can understand that it's uh, it's concerning when there are that when there are when there is information that goes out that relates to abductions, and then there's also information that go out that there are these missing women that we want to you know put those links together but as a police agency, you know we share the information and we 've had a look at those missing people, the missing women and can conclu- conclusively say that there are no links and that the situations in in the three of the the files that were being linked are vastly different, and there's just really no consistency with respect to what has occurred. Um, in, I mean, we're not in a position to provide the specific details, but I can assure you that those those files have been reviewed and are consistently being reviewed, and there are no, there are no links that we can find um, to link those two. Compounding that, then of course there are um, there was a a mass. Um, sharing of information as it related to a white van. Now that was primarily in the United States, but then that information then gets, um, you know, gets shared locally, and people then are more in tune with it, and then start finding white vans and reporting it. We've had our real time intelligence center here in BC look at the reports related to white vans, and there were a total of four reports. Uh, three of whom were received after having seen a social media uh, report of a white van. Um, The person had no interaction with the person inside that van and in some cases it was actually just parked on the side of the road and parked where it would not normally have been parked, which was reported as a suspicious incident. And then in one incident there was a man that was reportedly um, pulled inside of a white van and that investigation remains ongoing. So I think there's a couple things happening here. You know, there are, there's information that's being widely shared on, on social media that has not been verified by police uh, or police here in BC and, um, that is happening in other jurisdictions. And people are really wanting to share information. We appreciate that with respect to missing women and then have now linked those when, in fact, is, there are no links.
0: Uh, so with the cases right now that we do have of missing women, is there an increase, though, in, in the number of cases of missing women? Or does it just happen that w- that we're dealing with these cases right now that are not related?
2: Uh, we actually had So I had our, our missing person center actually look at the statistics and over... Uh, Last year, this time, we're actually down uh, 500 reports of missing persons in general, and so actually a decrease in the number of reports. That being said, you know, if you have one or two high-profile missing people and they get shared, there may be a perception that there's an increased number of of um, of missing people being reported to police, when in fact that isn't accurate either. So we have not had an increase in the number of missing people um, reported this year over last year.
0: Is it difficult for law enforcement and for police then to deal with cases like this where on the one hand we're dealing with information being shared widely on social media? And like you said, it could even be scenarios where someone saw a white van parked on the road. So it really had nothing to do with anything. There was nothing really untoward happening. So on the one hand, we have all of this information being shared. Uh, But on the other hand, we also have women who who fear that they don't get taken seriously when they do come forward and they do report something. Uh, So it seems like we're dealing with two big problems here.
2: Yeah, I mean, certainly that is a concern for us as well as for, by police, the underreporting, because it is important for us, number one, that people feel comfortable to come to speak to us and be able to report those incidents. Not only because it's important to be able to investigate that and to be able to take the people that are responsible for those crimes um, to justice, but also in that it's important for us to be able to see the trends that are occurring. So if you if a, if a person doesn't report to police then we don't have the information that we need in order to act on so you know if if a suspicious incident occurred if somebody followed you if uh, you know you felt uncomfortable and then uh, you know you felt you saw that person in more than one place and you think that that is out of the ordinary for you and you don't report that to police, then we have no means by which to, to follow up on that. And not only does that mean that, you know, potentially you you yourself could be in danger, but that person may be also um, putting somebody else in your community in danger. So it's imperative that you, that you come and talk to us. I understand, you know, th- that as a victim, it is very difficult in order to portray the, you know, your story, but on the same token, it it can be very empowering as well in order to know that you're making a difference and you could have an impact not only on your own life but on somebody else's life. And we, uh, you know, recently the RCMP has undertaken a review of sexual assault cases and is working forward to um, improve the way we we have dealt with them and the way we are dealing with them through um, uh, sexual assault training curriculum that's being rolled out uh, across the country uh, looking at education, public education and communication, uh, investigative accountability and, and, and additional victim support. So you can know that we are working towards um, victim support when people come to speak to us and that, you know, in doing so, you're not only helping yourself, but can also help
0: um, other members of your community that that person may um, have an impact on as well. And, and going back to the sharing of different stories and, and such on social media, what advice do you have for people on that, it, given that uh, while some people might be doing it for, for what, who knows what reason, others might legitimately see that and think that they're doing a public service by sharing it and circulating it, uh, taking it as face value, real information. So what advice do you have for people who see things like a white van or see uh, attempted abduction, see things circulating on social media? Well,
2: what I would suggest is that you first and foremost, you check your police of jurisdiction to see uh, whether or not there have been any warnings or any um, information that's been issued in relation to that. I mean, you can feel free to contact us on our social media channels um, through the BC RCMP, either Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. Reach out and say, hey, I have seen this circulating. I really do want to share accurate information, but I can't find anything on your site. So go to the police of jurisdiction. If you don't live in an RCMP jurisdiction, uh, you live in a, a one of our municipal partners, our job is public safety, and we are committed to public safety. So if there is something that has been reported to us and we are seeing a trend and we do monitor the, the, um, the, the file, files coming in on a daily basis for any reports of, you know, especially abductions or something like this that's very widely reported on um, and would be, you know, flagged for, for our follow-up, that we have issued anything. So if we have not issued anything, I would implore you to contact your police of jurisdiction and ask the question. I've seen this on social media. I wonder, does that apply here? Have you seen anything else um, throughout the province that perhaps would have flagged this? And we will look into it and get back to you. Uh, Rather than sharing information that doesn't come from um, a police agency in your area, I would recommend that you check out their social media channels, check out our social media channels for the most up-to-date and accurate information from police.
0: All right. Uh, Sergeant, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for your time and for coming on uh, to talk about this today. I appreciate the, the opportunity, Jill. Well, we've been talking about the announcement earlier today, new requirements at land borders for people coming into Canada. As of next Monday, Prime Minister Trudeau says people entering Canada by vehicle will have to show proof they've taken a negative
2: COVID-19 test.
1: When you return to Canada through a land border, you will need to show
3: a 72-hour PCR test just like for air travel.
0: Trudeau says they can't actually refuse entry at a land border to anyone that wants to come home, but there are
1: things they can do in the event someone doesn't have a test.
3: In cases of no test to show apply a stiff penalty, a fine.
1: Trudeau says they can also demand a
0: complete follow-up to ensure that those without a test are being properly quarantined. Sandy Salerno, Global News. Let's bring in Len Saunders. He's an immigration lawyer based in Blaine, Washington. Thanks so much for being with us again. No problem. How are you, Jill? I'm very well. How about you? Not too bad. Uh, What are your thoughts about the uh, new rules that are coming into place at land crossings?
3: Well, I think the Prime Minister was smart doing this because it was a huge loophole. Um, For the last week, I've been fielding calls from lots of Canadians who are in the U.S. who were concerned about flying into Canada and having to do the test. And if the test wasn't sufficient, they would possibly be put into these quarantines and hotels. And I told everyone who was calling me, there's no restrictions if you walk north. And I had a client who, or at least drive, I had a client who decided to uh, fly into Seattle from Utah yesterday, and she made her way from Seattle up to the border and just walked north. And you see that all day long at Peace Art. So I think it's smart making it consistent whether you're flying or driving so there's a consistent application of this new law.
0: What about the issue of essential workers that do cross the border and have been crossing the border throughout the pandemic and even during the border closure?
3: Well, when I first heard the Prime Minister's comments, that was my first concern. Like, what about the truckers? What about the essential workers going back and forth? You can't, you know, have those people do these 72-hour tests if they're going back and forth almost every single day. So I think they're smart by having an exemption for the essential workers, in my mind.
0: And uh, have you heard, we, we checked in with the BC Trucking uh, Association. They didn't seem too uh, concerned about this, saying that, yes, they thought that there would for sure be an exemption. But did you get any impression, uh, is it still, is it that you show up at the border and say, oh, well, I mean, if you're a trucker, obviously it's pretty obvious. But uh, I have a good friend who lives in Bellingham. She works in Vancouver. Uh, she, doesn't come, she doesn't cross the border every day. But she was concerned, saying, oh, well, is it going to be enough then to just tell the border guard, I'm going to work in Vancouver, I'm an essential worker
3: no absolutely not so what's been happening since the pandemic started was more individuals who are crossing back and forth on a daily or weekly basis are being told by the Canadian officers you need proof so they're asking for letters from employers or other sort of proof that they are truly essential workers so they're not taking people's words for it they want physical proof that that's why they're crossing back and forth is for essential purposes
0: uh, got an email from a listener when we were starting to talk about this today, and he brought up uh, an issue that you and I have talked about many times in the past, saying uh, that there's literally a campground. Uh, he lives uh, on Zero Avenue uh, between the Peace Arch border and the truck border, says there's a campground there. Uh, he sees hundreds of people meeting every day, Canadians meeting with Americans. They meet uh, throughout the day and then go about their daily lives. They're not required to have tests or do anything, and they've come into contact with people. Uh, what do you think about that scenario that's continuing?
3: Well, I'm there every day. That's my part-time office for Canadians who can't come into the U.S. I meet them there. So, you know, I'm violating that law if they try to enforce Canadians not coming into the Peace Arts Park. There's hundreds, if not thousands of people on weekends that cross back and forth. That's a little different because technically those Canadians are not entering the U.S. because they're entering the park. But It seems like the Canadian government is slowly tightening this noose on cross-border travel with COVID tests, with stopping the flights to Mexico and and, uh, the Caribbean. So I wouldn't doubt if you see the Canadian government trying to put up fences along Zero Avenue. And the other thing is there's this huge exemption for Canadians flying into the U.S. So at what point is the Canadian government going to be even-handed in trying to stop anybody going back and forth, regardless of the reason, unless it's essential work. So I wouldn't doubt if you see more enforcement uh, from the Canadian government going forward.
0: So would that be, say, in a scenario where even though the major carriers have stopped a lot of the sun destination flights, if somebody, say, from Canada flew to Hawaii or flew to Florida, uh, they would then be, once it's put in place, they would be subject to the testing to come back in and the quarantining rules. Uh, But do you think they could go even farther than that?
3: Well, I wouldn't doubt if you see those U.S. flights cancelled. As of right now, any Canadian can hop on a flight at the four major airports in Canada and fly to the U.S. You can't drive, right? The Americans won't allow you in. But, you know, I've said it's like having your front door locked and the back door wide open. Anybody can fly into the U.S. At some point, the Canadian government, if they're very serious on, um, you know, controlling this cross-border movement of people, they've got to shut that down. You know, many of my clients, almost on a daily basis, fly from Canada to the US to see their spouses. It's happening. The Canadian government, I'm surprised, hasn't shut it down. Maybe they're going to, maybe not, but it seems like every step they're taking is making the border harder to cross over and they're requiring all of this quarantine. Here we are almost a year since the border closed, and it's not getting any easier to go back and forth.
0: No, very, very true. Uh, Do you think that will change, though? I mean, they put the criteria out yesterday for the hotels, if there were hotels that wanted to be the quarantine centres in Canada. I think they have to have their application in by tomorrow. Uh, Once those rules are in place that require people to quarantine in a Canadian hotel at their own expense, do you think that will change?
3: Well, I think it's going to change people who want to go back and forth. It's definitely going to be a chilling effect. And what I'm seeing right now is quite interesting. Many Canadians went down as snowbirders back in October and November. They're now about four months into their six months. So I'm now starting to get a lot of phone calls from Canadians in in Phoenix, in Palm Springs, who now are looking at extending their visitor visas for another six months. I never used to see that. I would see people from other countries, from India, China, who wouldn't, you know, want to go back right away. But now for Canadians to want to extend their visitor visas, I never used to see that. So you're going to see people wanting to kind of stay in the U.S. with these tighter restrictions on returning to Canada.
0: Uh, how easy is it or difficult is it to do that, to extend your visitor visa? It's actually
3: not that difficult to do. There's there's costs involved and there's paperwork. But, um, you know, it's, it's not that difficult. So a lot of Canadians are looking into that. Now they're concerned about extending their medical. They're concerned about tax implications and all that. So there's other factors that they have to take in mind if they decide that they're going to extend past that six months.
0: And one other question, Len, when we talk about the the increased uh, restrictions and once those quarantine rules go into effect for people flying back, uh, do you think that that even with the increased restrictions that are coming in on Monday for land crossings where you have to have that that negative COVID test, if the land crossing still doesn't require uh, a quarantine at a hotel at your own expense, doesn't that still make it more appealing to people than flying?
3: Oh, absolutely. And it's interesting because, you know, You can be denied access to a flight, even though you're Canadian. The airline can say, sorry, you don't have the COVID test. But you can't be denied access to Canada at a land port of entry. So you're still going to see people who are concerned about flying, driving or walking north. So you're still going to see that. But I do believe it's a chilling effect. It's going to make many Canadians think twice about flying to the U.S. and then coming back because of all of these restrictions that the Canadian government seems to be implementing.
0: You're right, though, even if somebody is walking across or driving across, even if it means they have to pay a $3,000 fine, if that's the only option and they need to get back to Canada, there likely are going to be people doing that.
3: Oh, absolutely. But I think you're going to see definitely less people thinking about coming to this country, whether it's, you know, to visit family or vacation. So I think you're going to see
0: definitely a downturn in cross-border movements. All right. Uh, one other question. While I have you on the phone, any difference, any change with Point Roberts? Or is it still kind of a, a no-person's land and uh, nothing happening there?
3: I think it's just, it's it's a ghost town over there. Um, I don't think it's getting any better. And with these new land restrictions, I think you're going to see less and less people in the Point. So when everything's said and done in the next year or so, I'll be very interested to see if anything recovers over there because a lot of people aren't going to move back given, you know, how horrible it's been the last year with all of the restrictions in the point.
0: All right. We will leave it there. Len, always good to chat with you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jill. Have a great day. Well, there have been some questions raised once again, after the news that we got this morning, anyone who received federal financial support benefits to help get them through the pandemic and made up to $75,000 in taxable income won't have to pay interest on the 2020 tax debt until the next year. What does this all mean? Well, it means if you were confused about whether or not you could apply for the benefit on your gross income or your net income, the good news is thousands of people who got letters saying they owed money back will not have to repay the benefit as long as they were otherwise eligible. What does this all mean? Let's bring in Aliyah Varani, employment lawyer and associate at Samfiru Tamarkin LLP. Aliyah, thanks so much for being with us again. Thank you, Jill, for having me. I appreciate it. Well, it's great to have you here to walk us through this and explain it because I know there is still a lot of confusion. So what does this mean as far as people who received CERB, received the financial support and are concerned, maybe they got one of those letters that they had to pay a bunch of the money back. What does this mean today?
4: Yeah, so great question. There there are a number of situations where repayment might have, you know, where people may have received that repayment letter and this news it focuses on people specifically in the category who were confused about um, how to quantify their income. And so um, th- there were people who saw that $5,000 threshold. And for a long period of time, there wasn't any direct um, clar- clarity on whether that was going to be net income or gross income. And so your gross income is everything you receive um, a before you kind of make your deductions for expenses, that type of thing. And your net is, is truly what you keep at the end of the day. And so for people who, who may have used their gross income number uh, as, as proof or, or evidence that they were eligible for SERB, um, and then mistakenly, you know, they received it, and then later, you know, we found out that it was supposed to be based on a determination of net income. Those are the type of people that are going to benefit from this announcement right now.
0: And so for the people then and the thousands of people who got the letters saying, "Hey, you uh didn't you did this wrong, you owe money." What should they do?
4: Yeah, so um well, there it, the deadline I think for some of this the, the first things that you could have done is, has unfortunately passed, but but the recommendation from the government was to, you know, repay those amounts before December 2020. Um so you wouldn't be in a situation where you have that benefit counted as your as your taxable income and then you have to wait until you get your tax return back to you know get your any overpaid tax back but but for anybody else who i think is confused where there is evidence that the government didn't make a mistake because of how quickly this benefit was ruled out there's there's a good indication now that they're going to be more forgiving about the repayment obligations or more understanding because uh, because they recognize that it, it may have been unfair or confusing for a lot of people
0: uh, I got an email from somebody uh, who knew we were going to be talking about this, uh, saying that he asked about this last year on whether or not it was gross income or net income. Uh, the answer he received at the time was that it was gross income, uh, saying, though, he already refined his taxes to reduce expenses to bring the net income above 5000 Now we owe for the refund given. Does that make sense?
4: Yeah, I, I think I think that it does. And, and I think that what that shows is... is the reports that we received from from lots of people, and uh, that that they were doing their best to try to meet those eligibility requirements and do all of you know the due diligence that they thought they needed to do. I know people. I read reports of people speaking to accountants, of accountants and um, recipients of the benefits speaking to CRA agents themselves, and then receiving conflicting information about it being based on gross income, and um, and so it completely makes sense that. Uh, you know, people who tried their best to meet those requirements still were confused when they found those those letters being um, given to them that they uh, that they improperly improperly kind of uh, found themselves eligible when they weren't. Because you know, it sounds like this gentleman they, they did everything really they could to make sure that they had uh, uh, found the right um, determination of their eligibility requirement. And it's true that this information, I think, was conflicted. Um, There are uh, even reports of people reaching out to their MPs where um, I think that uh, they were told from them directly that it was based on gross income or or an incorrect quantification of their income. Uh,
0: Do you get the sense this is uh, having an effect? Is it mainly on people who are self-employed that found themselves in these scenarios?
4: Yes, I think that that's exactly the type of situation where this would come up more often, um, uh, particularly because they may be doing their um, income reporting or assessment themselves. And so uh, th- there could be confusion about how to do that, or um, you know, maybe there's a bad year that's not tr- traditional for other years, and so they, uh, they don't know how that's going to be considered. So those types of things would come up most often with people who are self-employed. And I think it's about uh, one in five people from, you know, I think Statistics Canada says that those would be the, that's the kind of the proportion who received CERB.
0: And what does this mean or or do we know at this point then, even if you weren't in this scenario in the group that got the letters, I think they were calling them the educational letters that they may need to repay funds. But if you were a recipient of CERB, uh, how does it impact as far as you filing your taxes and then claiming income when it comes time to do so? Great
4: question. So that's kind of what I was referring to earlier. And just to kind of break that down, um, you know, if you had received CERB, then you would report that as taxable income. And if you repaid it before the year end of December 2020, then it wouldn't be, it wouldn't quant- be quantified as part of your taxable income for the year. Um, but if you did not, then what you're going to have to do is, um, you know, you, you pay whatever tax is owing for that total year, and then later, um, when that's reconciled, whether that's taxable or not, then you get yeah, on your tax return, you know, after uh, 2021 spring, any reconciliation of what actually was your earned income or not. So, so for people who, um, you know, for people who had to repay or not repay, for the period of time that that's sorted out, uh, they're going to have to pay taxes if, you know, if they received it um, and then wait essentially until, until they get their tax return for that to be sorted out. And I think we also have some information that we can expect delays with the tax return. So what that means is just a little bit more waiting for everybody uh, until, these, until these kinks, I think, are sorted out by everybody, everybody else.
0: All right. Uh, still some welcome relief, I think, for people who were unsure what was going to be happening or if they owed uh, thousands of dollars uh, back to the government. Uh, Aliyah, thanks so much for joining us. Always great to have you uh, come on and explain these things.
4: Oh, no, thank you for having me. I appreciate it.